0: So church, we're in 2 Peter chapter 3 now, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Peter's writing his letter to a group of churches in Asia. Minor. It's called a cyclical letter. And it's being written just a few years before persecution would come upon the church for almost 250 years. And he's writing against false teaching, some of the issues that plague the church, but but listen to 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, this is the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly." So this passage, Peter is addressing the issue of the false teachers and how we are to be able to stand against their teaching. And he says, first of all, he says the purpose of this letter is to stir you up by way of remembrance. I want to stir up your sincere mind by, by way of reminder or remembrance. To stir means to make you wide awake. I want to make you wide awake as you remember, and I want that to produce sincerity or purity or wholeness or harmony or or radiance in your life. And that's the purpose of his letter, to stir them up by way of reminder. Uh, Reminder or remembrance was key in the life of Peter. In 2 Peter, for example, chapter 1, he says, verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have remind you. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up or to cause you to be wide awake by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will soon come, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So remind, remember, recall, all synonyms. And I want to stir you up. There's a man named James Houston who taught at Regent College in British Columbia for decades. A wonderful man. He deals with spiritual formations. And he says to really grow and be nurtured by a truth, we have to remember it every six minutes. Maybe an overstatement. But how important it is to remember and recall and to be reminded. And then he says in this passage, I want you to remember. By way of reminder, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And knowing this, that first of all, in last times, last times refers to the period after the ascension of Jesus. So last times has been the whole church age. Don't you know, in last time, the last times, there will be scoffers who will rise among you. They're part of the false teachers. And we saw in chapter two, the false teachers were marked by three things. Number one, they would come in among them in the church. They would come in from among the people in the church, come in. And number two, they would secretly introduce destructive heresies. They did it in a clandestine, secretive way. They would worm their way into the hearts the affections of the people, and then they would lay on them destructive heresies. Peter says, even denying the reality of the sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, because of their secretive, clandestine, heretical teachings, many in the church, many, would blaspheme the truth, and so part of their heretical, worming way in is, is they, would, they would look at the people and they would say something like this, as Peter says, where's the Lord? Where's the sign of God? Where's the Lord's coming? Where, where is all this evidence about the living God who existed, whose name is Jesus? Ever since our fathers fell asleep, generations and generations and generations ago, nothing changes. It's all the same And then Peter says this, they deliberately overlook three things. They deliberately overlook the beauty of creation, that God made the heavens and the earth by his word. He spoke them into being. They deliberately overlook that there was a time in history when God judged the earth in the Noahic flood, the flood that was part of Noah's heritage. And and they deliberately overlook that there is a day of judgment coming for they will answer to the Lord. So these, these people, these false teachers are really bad people. Let me read some of his descriptions from chapter two. He says that in verse 10, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. We don't know if that means the angels or the living God, but they, they blaspheme the things of God. They speak derisively obvious. So they don't tremble. There's no fear of God. There's no reverence for God. They blaspheme. They, they tremble. He says that they are creatures of instinct in verse 12, born to be caught and destroyed. He says in verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, they're, they're so given over to sin. You know, If you're going to do something bad, you usually do it in the cover of darkness or in some type of anonymity. These people just revel in the daytime. They don't care. Who knows? They don't care who sees. They're just doing it. They're blots and blemishes, he says. They have eyes full of adultery as they feast with you. They are insatiable in their sexual appetite. They entice unsteady souls. They are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. The gloom of utter darkness is reserved for these. It's a horrific picture of people that, and then he says in chapter three, they follow their own evil desire. So to support their worldview of carnality, they progressively mock the character of God and the coming judgment of God. And Peter talks about the judgment that's coming and. The new heavens and the new earth, and he says, verse 11, chapter 1, in this way you will be richly provided for as you enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's an eternal kingdom that you're going to enter into as believers. And so as, as I thought about this, it is, it, is a, it is a horrible thing, church. It's a horrible thing to overlook the reality of the day of judgment. Now, if if you're a believer in Christ, the day of judgment will be a day where you enter into heaven. But in the day of judgment, you will give an account as a believer of the way you've lived your life. It's called the judgment of rewards. You get into heaven, but you're going to be judged as a steward of God's manifold grace poured into your life. And and so it's a day of glory. If you're not a believer, I'm so glad you're here today. The day of judgment is a day of judgment. The one who extends mercy to you on that day will become your judge and you'll be judged forever. So it's really heaven or hell. And it's a dangerous thing to overlook the absolute importance of and centrality of the day of judgment. So, so these people, their worldview went something like this, you know, if God exists, He cannot be defined. He's so obtuse and so far away, and He's not involved in history. Things things just go on and on and on as they always have. There, there's, there's no uh, rhyme to reason for that. And because God is distant and cannot be defined, He has not spoken. Therefore, we don't know what His will is. There's no purpose in living. There, there's no sense of, of, of I need to do these things and not do these things. So, so there's, no, there's no real purpose hope. Life is not an unfolding reality. Life is a mix of hither and that, hither and yon, and just a a cacophony of nothingness on top of nothingness. There's no symphony. It's just nothingness. But we believe, as we study the Bible and as we know Christ, that, that God is our Abba Father, and that God works in our lives, and that God's purposes are being fulfilled in us. And the history is going somewhere. And there's a day coming called the day when I will stand before the living God, the day of judgment. And that is a glorious day. And I will enter into the kingdom of God because of the work of Christ upon the cross. I was thinking about a psalm, Psalm 57, written by David. Background is this. David had married into the family of the king, a guy named Saul. His best friend that he dearly loved was the king's son, David had fought for the king. He was a champion, a military champion, but the king was jealous and was possessed by an evil spirit, and he hated David, and he wanted to kill David because he knew David would one day be king. And so David had to flee for his life. He had to flee for his life from his wife, so he left his wife. He had to flee from the friendship of his best friend, Jonathan, who was a wonderful man, the king's son. And David is being hunted by the special forces, the special ops of King Saul. 3,000 men are on an expedition to find David and a couple hundred guys hiding in caves, fearing for their lives. So here, not only that, but there's a walled city that's being attacked by the bad guys. David and a few hundred guys came and delivered the city from rape, pillage, destruction, and death. And after he delivered the city from rape, pillage, destruction, and death, the city council got together and sent a message to Saul and said, we know you want to kill David. He's here. Come and get him. So David had to flee for his life after he delivered a city. So he's he's betrayed, belittled, dumbfounded, hunted, and hated. And he's in a cave fearing for his life, trying to escape the special ops of King Saul. And this is what he writes. It blows my mind. Chapter... Psalm 57, just the first three verses. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. We're all going to be in storms of destruction. And Dave says, I'm finding refuge under the wings of the living God. Then he says this. I cry out to God, most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send From heaven and save me, he will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. I'm going, okay, David, you're in a cave. You're being hunted. You've been betrayed, belittled, dumbfounded. And yet you say this, have mercy on me. Then he says, I come to the God who will fulfill his purpose in me. Wow. David says, I have dignity, I have hope, I have purpose because I serve a God who, even in the midst of storms of destruction, bring his purposes to pass. Totally different worldview. And so th- th- these people, these scoffers said, there's no God, history's going nowhere, you have no purpose, no reason for living. And they deliberately forget. Let me talk about deliberately forgetting. Look at this verse. This is, no, that's the one we're this is Romans chapter 1. Okay. Deliberately forget. We believe the Bible teaches that you're not born tabula russa, a blank slate. You're born with a sin, conscience, but you're born with an innate understanding of justice and mercy and love. And the standards of God. In fact, Romans 2 says that when the nations or the Gentiles who do not know God do the things of God, it shows that their His standards are written on their hearts. So, So men and women, we believe the Bible teaches, are born with an innate sense of love, justice, and mercy. And Romans 1 says this: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them in creation. So so these people, Peter says, they deliberately forget the standards of God. They deliberately forget that God is God. And that God made the heavens and the earth. And that God will judge. And that brings us to, I want you to think through this, think through this with me. That brings us to a a teaching, theologically, that, that we call common grace. It's a terrible name for your daughter, but it's a good doctrine to think about, okay? Common grace. Common grace says this, there is a knowledge of God possessed by all men and women because they're made in the image of God. And even though they're sinful, they retain the knowledge of justice and honesty and love. So common grace is common to all men. And the second part of that understanding is that, that God, in His mercy, has given good gifts to all types of men, believers and unbelievers alike. All men have received gifts indiscriminately. So we have people who do not profess faith in God who have incredible artistic gifts. We have people who have skill in entrepreneurial work. We have people who have done incredible scientific discoveries or medical or technological advances. And, and they do that because they've been given gifts by the living God. I was reading about a guy named Leonard Bernstein, who's a famous conductor and, and composer. And Bernstein, who did not profess to be a believer at all, said that when I, I listen, he said, I listened to Beethoven, Because he says, when I listen to Beethoven, I have order and a sense of calm in my spirit because of the majesty of the music of Beethoven. And I thought, that's just a statement of common grace. God gives good gifts to all types of people everywhere. John Calvin said this. John Calvin, the reformer died in 1564. He said, let that admirable light of truth shining in them, non-Christians, Teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from sin, from its wholeness is nevertheless, listen, clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it Wherever it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. In other words, all truth is God's truth, and we celebrate the incredible giftedness of people, believer and unbeliever alike. You see, so common grace says that God restrains sin by the knowledge of God, that we innately know there is a God, and there will be a judgment of this. And also, He gives gifts to people that enrich society and culture. For example, in 1984, the picture of the year was a movie called Amadeus. It's a story about a man named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Okay? Mozart. And Mozart in the movie was portrayed as um, a party boy, basically. He was just living crazy. Just stayed up all night partying and then would produce some of the most beautiful music that's ever been written before or since, and he had a, a nemesis or a, a, a cohort named Salieri, and Salieri was a composer. He was gifted, but he wasn't in the same. I mean, Salieri was since the baseball season was was tr- single A ball. Mozart was an all star in the major leagues. So Salieri would, would, would go to bed at 9 o'clock and get up at 5, and he would take his vitamins and eat oatmeal and take probiotics and, and do stretching exercises and do all those things he was supposed to do, and, and, and he, couldn't, he couldn't touch Mozart. And in one, in one part of the movie, Salieri walks into a room where Mozart, in really kind of in a drunken stupor, had scribbled some music. And Salieri picks it up and looks at it and throws it down disgust, and he walks out because he realizes that Mozart in a drunken stupor was far greater than he would ever be. Okay. And see, out here, he had a real issue, if you've watched the movie, he had a real issue with, with the failure of divine justice to judge Mozart and to elevate him. But what he really should have had a struggle with was a failure to understand the glories of common grace, that God gives good gifts to all types of people to enrich our lives. So thank God for Mozart. Now, as you understand this, let me show you. Show you this. i are talking about Second Peter, and these teachers that are insatiable in their sexuality. They have eyes full of greed. They revel in the daytime. They don't even try to hide it. They go to the Lord's supper to seduce women. They were they were bad bad dudes. So when I, when I look at the scale of people theologically who are who are non-believers, there, there's a scale here, and up here to the left is what I've just referred to as noble-hearted, kind non-Christians. We know them. Noble hearted men and women. They're not believers. But but they're, they're noble hearted, they're kind, they're just. And then you go down the scale, and I just call it the, the Ug N. That's U G H, not U G A if you're a Georgia fan. U G H Ug, which means that, that's that's Second Peter two. Those are the people that are insatiable from their sexuality. They they revel in the, the daytime. They they are blotched and blemishes. We all have no noble hearted. Christians and non Christians. After I went to college, I went to Singapore for two years and coached basketball. And I was under the leadership of an athlete director in an international school named Coach Kazi Nathan. He was from Sri Lanka. He was a Hindu. That's the the majority religion in Sri Lanka is Buddhist, but he was Hindu. And Coach Kazi was in his 50s. I was 22, And, and he just befriended me. And one of the most gentle, gracious, caring, men I've ever met, and I remember getting to know him as a young guy. And I, what do you believe? And so forth and so forth, We'd have lunch together. I said, "I said, Coach Kazi, I want you to understand that the reality of God is in Jesus." He said, "Buster, many people told me about this, many, many people, and I'm a Hindu." And we, I, I keep I on coming. I said, "Coach, I, I really wish you'd know Buster. I, I'm I am a Hindu." He would laugh and he'd say, "Oh, you you Christians," and he just laugh. And we would, just a sweet guy. To my knowledge, he never came to faith. But he was noble-minded, noble-hearted. I would trust him with my life. So we've known those people, but this, this passage is addressing the ug, And, and, and bad dudes. Now, there's a man named Burkhoff. He's a famous theologian, and he, he says that Common grace is preserved and increased by four means. One is general revelation, which you see you see creation. I was just out walking this morning, and I thought, thank you, God, for 35 varieties of green in Charleston. Isn't it something? Th- that, thank you for... We have some eagles nesting in our backyard. How cool is that? Well, it's really our neighbor's yard, but it's... We've adopted it. And, and thank God for silly puppies. You ever seen a puppy and said, This puppy has no reason to exist except to make me laugh? Thank God for the gift of, of, of children. Thank God for laughter. Just thank God for the wonderful gifts you've given to all people everywhere. The second way is human government. We know from Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 that, that God gives us good government to reward those who do well and to punish those who do wrong. And that, that's a restraining force. That's how common grace. And the other is, is public opinion, he says. And then the fourth is the concept that there is a God to whom I will answer. People say, well, you know, there is a God and I'm going to answer to him. And as I thought about that, and I thought about our day and age, and I went to the last two, public opinion and divine punishment, and I thought, we live in a tough time. A couple of examples. I rejoice in the wonderful things that have happened in our culture in many areas. For example, just one example, race relations. Thanks be to God for what's happened in the United States in the area of race relations and caring for, for each other despite our ethnicity. I think that's wonderful. But I look at other areas and that where public opinion shapes the way you think, and, and we're in a very difficult place. One example, um, when I was growing up, uh, people, when they hit bumps in their marriage, just toughed it out maybe for decades. That's not what God's will, but they just hung in there. And let me say this, if you're in a bad place in your marriage, if you pray and seek God and get counsel, it'll get better. It'll get better. So I grew up in a culture where there was rare, rarely a divorce. And now we have no fault divorce. You hit a rough patch in your marriage and you say, it's over. And so when that's the ethos of the culture, marriage loses its sacred character. Now, I said last week that if your marriage is based upon a, 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 a contract, you meet your, my needs and I'll meet yours, I don't see how any marriage ever, ever, ever survives that. Because I am so self-centered, I'm always trying to see how Sarah can meet my needs. But marriage is a covenant relationship that can only be broken by certain things in Scripture. Then, then, then you hang in there. But the ethos is, that, that ethos is gone. That's why I, I just plead with you to understand these things. I was reading this week and I came across a term I'd never seen before. It was called it's called mirror imaging. It was in the Wall Street Journal, an editorial on the fourth, May the fourth. And it's written by two people who were CIA operatives, one for 24 years in the Middle East, and the other has just been a CIA counterterrorism expert in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And this is what they say, and I think it's so appropriate. Listen, intelligence officers are taught to avoid mirror imaging. That is, assuming your adversary shares your analytic reference points and thinks the way you do. Americans tend to ascribe to other countries the best of our own values, which includes tolerance and equal opportunity and economic freedom and rule of law and freedoms of speech and religion. They said, but many countries do not share these values. Two of them are, and they named the two countries Saudi Arabia and Iran, where they've been working, they describe it. And then they go, you know, we, we are going into a fight with our hands tied behind our back if we think that every culture mirrors what we believe. Um, it says ISIS, Al-Qaeda are, are bad. They want to destroy. They're bad. And I read that and I thought about being in Tunisia two years, three years ago now, and I was st- speaking at a, at a seminary of about 45 men from Algeria and Libya and Tunisia and Morocco and southern Morocco and uh, and, and Egypt I think I said Egypt and there's an Egyptian translator cuz I spoke and he was a medical doctor delightful man and the week I was there was the week there was incredible turmoil in Cairo Cairo between uh, the Egyptian brotherhood and the Egyptian army who was trying to take over him and they eventually did and and uh, he was calling his wife every night, and they lost power. They lost their water supply because they were trying to, to weed them out. And he said, he said, this week, Buster, something significant will happen, either good or bad, in Egypt. And we were talking. And he's, I said, well, tell me about the Egyptian Brotherhood. And he said, there's an element in the Egyptian Brotherhood that is really bad, he says. He says, there are people in the Egyptian Brotherhood that want to kill me because I'm a Christian. And my wife because she's a Christian. And our children. And he laughed and said, and if the Egyptian brotherhood ever has a chance, they will kill you as well. And I went, oh, bad dudes. So, So while there are, be careful about mirror imaging, which means ascribing to the people around you the same values. You embrace. There are bad people. Listen to me. There are bad. There are many noble pagans, noble non-believers, but there are some bad people who want to take you down and destroy your testimony, and minimize the work of Christ in your life. And you've got to be careful. This two weeks ago, there was a cover story in Time magazine. Time magazine on pornography, and Time magazine had this uh, article. it was uh, you ought to read. It. It's an incredible article. I'm giving it to the guys this week to read and. Anyway, it talks about how, 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 how pornography is a growing cancer in our culture and how neuroscientists and other physicians have studied pornography and they've come to the conclusion, many of them, that pornography literally rewires your brain. And that they interviewed countless young men who said, I cannot enter into a relationship or have sustained relationships because I'm addicted to pornography. And it's hard for me to relate to other women because I'm addicted to pornography. And I sat there and I thought, I hate pornography. I despise it, what it does to men of all ages. I also said, as long as you're a man in this body, you will struggle to one degree or another with some of these issues. Therefore, we've got to glory in the greatness of Christ. We've got to glory and be glad and realize there are forces out there that want to bring us into slavery, to pornography, to make money off of us, and to ruin our lives. And if we're not aware of that, then we are fighting in a battle with our hands tied behind our back. So, so know that, know that. As I look at this passage, I ask from the scripture, how do, we, how do we fight the false teachers? Let me go through that very quickly. Number one, if we're to fight the false teachers, if we look at the text, number one, it says, I'm writing to you the second letter, beloved. Don't just run by that word. Beloved means dear precious ones. People that I love. He says in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, or 13, I think is, that as, as I'm, long as I'm in, or excuse me, I'm going to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth. And here, here's Peter, who's a rough fisherman, never would win miscongeniality, and yet he's just trying to tell people, man, I love you. He I'm going to remind you of these things. Even though you know them and you're established, let me remind you because I'm going to die soon. Let me remind you. I'm going to remind you because I want you to recall them the rest of your days before you die. But you're established in them. You're beloved. And I read that and I thought, if I'm going to fight the adversary, if I'm going to fight false teachers, I've got to find myself in environments of grace and mercy and care and love and laughter. I've got to be around people who remind me and who love me and who build into my life. My small groups, men's groups, the church in general, people that just care for me. If we're going to fight this warfare, and it's a fight, and don't look to the environmental controls to help you out because we're departing from the truth. You've got to be with people who know Jesus, who love the Word of God. Secondly, if I'm going to fight the good fight, I've got to give myself to the stirred up process. To be be stirred up to wholesome thinking, he says, means to be startled wide awake, and to be startled wide awake, he says, you've got to remember the promises of God. You've got to remember what the apostles said. You've got to remember these things. And you've got to be aware of the drift process that happens all the time. You just drift and you 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 drift. And, you drift and pretty soon you're way over here. Alexander Pope wrote a poem the 1800s that goes like this Vice is a monster of such frightful mean or appearance of such frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen yet seen too oft we grow accustomed to her face first we endure then we pity then we embrace it happens all the time you endure it it's just part of us you pity and you embrace Number three, if I'm going to fight the good fight, I've got to live this day in light of that day. I've got to realize, church, I will stand before the living God one day and give an account, as a believer, of the way I've lived my life. And this day should be lived in light of that day with joy and glory. I was talking to someone last night or recently about a... Some young people in our church, and when were, they were in a dating relationship, and and uh, I thought, man, I hope this happens. You know, you get to see things and say, I hope this happens. I hope they get married. And then I thought, they can't possibly get married because I only married their mom and dad seven years ago. Not really, I married them 26 years ago. But boom. Now, if, you're, if you're under 30, just roll your eyes, okay? Just go ahead and roll your eyes. Let's get it over with. Let me tell you something. Life is a runaway freight train. Life is fast. Life is fast. And life is tenuous. This will be the last Mother's Day that some people experience. And it is foolish not to live this day in light of that day. Westminster Confession of Faith says that God has kept the Day of Judgment as a secret to everyone so that Believers can take great comfort that the day is coming and that others can throw off all carnality as they consider the things of God. Fourthly, and this really in the text is kind of, sort of, I want to say it. Uh, we need to realize as we deal with people who want to wait, pull us down, and all people, that there's a difference between unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. Acceptance. See, as, as followers of Jesus who stand under the authority of the Bible, we, we believe that love is doing that which is best for other people in light of eternity. So there's between unconditional love and unconditional acceptance. So let me give you two snapshots. Uh, recently, Sarah and I went to Washington State to visit with our son, his daughter, and their, our, our first and only grandchild, seven months old. grandparents have been telling me for years, man, being a grandparent is the bomb. It's great. And I thought, oh, okay, it is. I'm telling you, it really is cool. And so we went out there and uh, we were just with our grandbaby. They both worked with them all the time and just loved it. Just loved it. It It's so cute. And one day our son got home early from work and our grandson Gideon was sleeping. So they live about 50 minutes out of town, down the mountain in this beautiful little city called Wenatchee, and my wife wanted to go to a special market that had organic oil and organic meat and organic vegetables, and so I said, okay, so we went down the mountain and went in there, and you know, those places, it was a really beautiful place, but there, there are certain types of people that frequent those places, you know, and so I'm, I'm in there, and, and Sarah's talking to this, this gal, this 25-year-old, real sweet girl, I walked up, and Sarah's buying some oil, and she says, it gives me great comfort to know that I can put this oil on my skin or on my salad and eat it. And, 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 and I said, that's what I do with mayonnaise. <laughs> and she at me, she went, and Sarah said, just, just ignore him, just ignore him. Uh, but anyway, I won't tell you that because I, I thought it was funny. That's, that's nothing to do with this. But the other snapshot that has to do with this is um, uh, we're, we're out shopping, and we go by this store, and they're having a, a sale. And my, my son, who went to Citadel and loves Clemson, said, Dad, if I'm going to cheer for a team on the West Coast, it's going to be the Washington Huskies. I said, okay. So I thought, I'm going to get my son a gift. So there's a sweatshirt there that said Washington Huskies on. I bought it. And as when I bought it. I saw out of the corner of my eye a young man stocking the shelves who had Lots of makeup on, and was dressed very femininely, and I have gotta tell you, that's just outside of my paradigm. And I just thought, oh man, bless, it. bless, you. bless that guy. So I went back up the mountain. Here's that. Here's your Washington Husky sweatshirt. Dad, I'm not gonna wear that. I said, oh okay, put it back in the bag. Next day we go back down the mountain. I go back in the store to return it. You know, it costs 3 dollars and eighty-eight cents. I'm going to get my money. And and so I go inside, and the guy receiving returnables was the guy stocking the shelf. He's lots of makeup, eyebrows, colored, very different dress. Um, And I I just stood there, and I thought, my wife and my grandson are in the car. It's 60 degrees, but the air conditioning is on full blast just in case the little prince might get hot. And so... I didn't have a lot of time, but I said to myself, self, love him. Jesus wants to love him. So I stood there, and he was, you know, doing his thing. I I said, I I want to thank you. This, the way you return the money, this tour." credit line. It's very professional. I've been to other places where you have to stand in line and show your Visa card and how you bought it and the sales slip. You guys are so kind. Thanks for doing that. It makes my life very easy. He said, well, thank you, sir. I said, you know, um, I, how long have you worked here? He said, oh, I've been working about, it, about a year. I said, well, you grew up here? Yes, I grew up in Asha. I said, it's a beautiful place. Yeah, it's a beautiful area. I said, are you between? Said, I'm between high school and college. Not sure what I want to do. I said, well, you're very kind and very gracious and very professional. I, I'm so thanks for whatever you did for me. And I left. And, you know, I, I just thought, listen, if you go to a neighborhood party and two guys come in and they introduce themselves as husband and wife, go straight to them. Ask them questions. Ask them, what do you read? Where do you eat? What's your favorite vacation spot? Where are you from? Uh, just, and And love them. And get to know them and as you get to know them and and the lord will open the door for you to say you know i've got to talk to you about something i've got to talk to you about the reality of jesus that saved me and what christ does for me and as you, we talk about that they may say well here christians are against this lifestyle well the bible's against it because outside of god's pattern for wholeness but but in spite of what you do with this message i want you to know if I outlive you, I will be at your funeral and I will grieve your death. God has called us to love people. And we need to go to sometimes to make a beeline to people that are just they're just outside of our paradigm of comfort. And in this culture, that paradigm, I believe, will grow. We're called to love. And as God gives us grace, 1 Peter 3, worship Jesus in your heart. And always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when they do slander you, and they're going to slander you, they'll have no basis for their slander. So church, be aware, be prepared, honor the Lord. Let's pray. For this day, O Lord, we thank you for the goodness of Christ, we thank you. We thank you that you have given intuitively, men and women, a knowledge that you're a creator God and that people understand fairness and justice and aspects of love. All people do because they're made in your image, gloriously made in your image. We thank you that you've given all types of good gifts to different types of people, for the ordering of society and the enriching of our lives, whether it's in the arts or athletics or medicine or technology or entrepreneurial work or teaching. Thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, that you tell us very clearly that that there are elements in our culture that want to weigh us down and wear us out and destroy our testimony and take away our laughter and take away our dancing and take away the joy and we don't want to do that. So let us be aware and wary and armed and ready. So blessed be your name this day. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we rejoice in you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a good day.